are the jobs worth the environmental risk? This week highlights of our public meeting on the proposed Valentine Lake gold mine in central so-called Newfoundland. I'm Glenn Wheeler and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. Concerns are growing about the impact of the proposed Valentine Lake gold mine on land, water, and the woodland caribou. With the financial assistance of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, we brought together the experts and a keeper of traditional Mi'kmaq knowledge. You'll be hearing from Muchi Bennett, Brian McLaren, Richard Wong, Jim Kuypers, and Simone Cominelli. We start with Muchi Bennett. First of all, uh, I, I want to say uh, I'm very grateful to be included in this dialogue. Uh, I find um, personally with a lot of matters, uh, especially with regards to the environment, uh, First Nations voices are often excluded or the last ones to be invited to the table. So I want to express my, my gratitude for that. I, uh, I won't do an opening prayer because this is being broadcast, you know, on Facebook and record it so but uh, I will give my thoughts and my thoughts and my hopes really are my prayer because they come from the hurt and uh, so first of all I want to say that uh, welcome to my home uh, because this is my first time ever doing uh, uh, anything on zoom or on uh, you know any any type of virtual meeting so I'm sort of this is very new to me and uh, um, I'm not very comfortable with it, but you are in my home and I'm in yours. So I hope that this discussion, you know, is going to be done in a good and respectful way as if we were visiting each other in our homes. Um, I know that this is um, a subject that uh, can bring a lot of emotion, uh, you know, on both sides of, of the debate. So, so long as we can keep that uh, respectful to one another, uh, hopefully... We can also consider that uh, no matter what our background is, you know, uh, politically or, or uh, by birth or, or religion or our own private thoughts, that we respect that amongst all of us because we are the ones as human beings, we're the ones that were given this voice that we can speak up if we choose for other people that are being harmed or done wrong. For, uh, for the animals, for the environment, for the birds, for, for, for everything in creation. So uh, with that in mind, and also that we, we have to consider in our, in our decisions, the, the seven generations from now, and that's always said, but a lot of people don't understand that the decisions that are made now, they do have a, an effect on those seven generations from now, but also on each and every generation from now to get to that seventh generation. So if we start doing that in a better way, maybe, because uh, I'm, I'm really not against um, uh, jobs or mining or, or uh, oil extraction or whatever's best for the economy. I'm not, but really I'm more for 
what's best for uh, for the environment and uh, what's best for those next seven generations um we, we all live in this planet we don't have a ladder to go to the next one you know uh if we continue on on the path that we're on um we're, we're going to destroy what we have and those next seven generations and each generation from now will suffer so my hope you know and and, and my 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 wish so it is my prayer that we're going to turn over a better uh, a better world a better earth to uh to each of those next generations to come let me go back around the table and uh come back to you brian brian and uh, richard have been working on our uh particular our part of the environmental uh review uh review of the environmental impact statement filed by marathon I know, uh, Brian, your work is uh, not finished, uh, but uh, you have uh, reviewed the environmental impact statement from the point of view of impact on caribou. So can you give us a sense of uh, what you've identified as the issues uh, in terms of uh, impact on caribou and mitigation, what is being proposed by marathon to mitigate and what your view is of those uh, mitigation um, procedures. So Glenn, I think you put it well in the, in the podcast, you said, uh, if this is an ultimatum, you know, the question is, is it a caribou herd uh, or 320 jobs? And you're making reference to what most know as the ba uh, Buckins Plateau caribou herd. And I'll I'll speak most to you about that. It's, it's actually technically just one of four herds in the area. The others being La Poyle, I already mentioned, uh, and uh, Gray River, and Gaff Topsails, which is that exciting group of caribou that most of you have probably seen as you pass them in the springtime along the Trans-Canada Highway. All of them spend uh, much of the winter, uh, or most of them spend much of the winter from those four herds along the south coast, as several herds do. And uh, the uh, uh, the poil and gaff topsail caribou do not seem to be very much affected by the project development. And uh, uh, that comes out in details from uh, analyses in the statement. So I won't speak much more about them, but I do want to point out among the uh, shortcomings that I see in, in uh, uh, transparency in the analysis and in the uh, uh, mitigative measures is that the Great River has a significant calving area, which lands right on the proposed uh, project area that you were shown in the map. And uh, that is listed as a very minute percentage of the total range. But in fact, uh, no analysis was uh, done to determine what the number of uh, calves that are contributed to the population might be. I uh, want to point out that all those caribou herds are declining. Um, uh, Gray River reached its peak in 1991 and uh, contributes about 7% of the caribou in Newfoundland, and Newfoundland as an island. And the Buckins Plateau uh, started uh, uh, to decline in uh, 2007. So many of these uh, uh, are meeting that extra challenge, as Mooch said, of additional predators, most significantly uh, numbers of coyotes that make a difference. And this is where the Hope uh, Gold Mine study uh, plays into this. Here, there's a, there's a table that's in the impact statement that lists the Hope Brook Gold Mine study and points out that during uh, most of the year and during the construction and operation phases, 
so the uh, four or five year cycle of that mine, uh, caribou would not be uh, uh, as abundant. They were only 17 to 27% what they were prior to the mine construction in an, uh, a radius of four kilometers. And the concentric circles were surveyed to show that uh, during uh, late winter, uh, during pre-calving and calving periods, the Lapoil caribou in this case were dispersed beyond six kilometers. And they fell to that, you know, fractional, less than, uh, in most cases, less than 20% of what they were prior to uh, construction in a six kilometer radius area. So here's my biggest beef on how the most impacted caribou herd, and in this case, returning to the Buckins caribou, uh, herd as it passes through a narrow waterway, very similar to that narrow waterway between Star Lake and the western end of Red Indian Lake is what's being proposed to be blocked off again. That's the, you know, Victoria Lake to Valentine Lake corridor. Uh, it's in fact not the uh, 10 kilometer barrier to the spring and fall migrations that's uh, of concern in the report uh, because the buffered area is just uh, half a kilometer. If the buffered area is the full six kilometers during the sensitive time in spring, then you're looking at over 20 kilometers of basically a no-go zone that the caribou may remember before they depart in the spring and fall. So I don't know that it's an ultimatum, but I would certainly like to see more than the mitigative procedure that's in place, which is that uh, caribou monitors will be present. They'll be hired by wildlife division or they'll be biologists or conservation officers they can't be present in all places and they shouldn't be looking at, in a half kilometer area around the mine development i think there should be more transparency on the on the question of the uh, uh, distance uh, of disturbance that's documented in both those studies the star lake which is a cumulative effect of the buckets herd and the uh, 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 gray river uh, uh, in the case of calving. And uh, just as a, a note here that I put down, I went back to the study of uh, what was flooded in Star Lake. That was 15.4 kilometers. So that's, uh, you know, the high water level changes a, a little bit from year to year. That is a permanent loss of habitat. The same that's pretty much envisioned well beyond the lifetime of the Valentine Gold Lake Mine. In fact, it's project areas more than double that uh, uh, area of, of, of permanent or semi-permanent habitat loss. So just speaking of long-term, the last point I wanna make is uh, the impact statement is pretty slim on the long-term dynamics. And Richard's going to speak more about how since the days of VHF and, uh, and the uh, type of monitoring that was done in the previous environmental assessments, we can look more carefully at what the uh, uh, you know, what the longer term trajectory is based on the importance to calving of the areas during a, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, during the pre-development uh, data that we do have. And should the development go ahead, uh, I think we would like to see that continued monitoring of caribou uh, uh, parturition or births and caribou uh, calf survival. Uh, I'll repeat, we've got coyotes in the area like we didn't have in the previous developments. And uh, I think, Richard, you were the first to point out in a discussion we had over the weekend how, how narrow that passage is and how it's uh, you know, now got 
potentially two pinch points where the Buckins Plateau herd will have to move to the westernmost parts of their current migration with, with unknown uh, outcomes there. You provided a good segue for Richard. Brian mentioned the caller data. And uh, we, as part of our uh, research to respond to the environmental impact statement, have been requesting this caller data that's been collected by the Wildlife Division that Brian used to work for years ago. I hope we do get it. We haven't got it yet. But I wonder, Richard, if you could explain what we mean when we refer to caller data and why it is important to have that for this exercise of evaluating the Marathon Gold Environmental Impact Statement? Uh, so essentially the data that we're trying to obtain is uh, animal telemetry data, uh, which essentially is uh, GPS positions of collared animals uh, that collects a, uh, a specific position every one to two hours. And, uh, and uh, collectively it can tell us the, the movement patterns of animals. Uh, so essentially a sample of animals are sedated, outfitted with these collars, and um, they may also make ground level observations like sex and perhaps uh, for the case of caribou, uh, which herd they may belong uh, to if known. Um, so what we can learn from uh, collar data is that um, from these sample animals, we can learn and make inferences on the movement patterns of the herds and population trends of the caribou. Uh, like what was alluded to in the impact statement summary um, and explain more in depth in a supplementary document. Um, it can describe the existing home ranges and uh, migratory patterns across seasons. Uh, but what we endeavor, uh, endeavor to do is to look at very specific movement patterns of our, of, uh, of uh, the caribou and, uh, and make a biologically relevant uh, inferences on their behavior. Uh, so we endeavor to uh, fill in some of the knowledge gaps and enhance some of uh, Marathon Gold's assessments and identifying very specific movement patterns that describe uh, the movements of uh, pregnant females leading up to birth and then the in the sensitive weeks following um, for her and her calf. Um, so we believe that this is a really invaluable knowledge uh, because of uh, during this uh, process like uh, like Brian had mentioned that this is very uh, poses very vulnerable time for both adult females and their calves and uh, the future viability of uh, pop uh, populations of caribou worldwide are kind of predicated on this sensitive uh, six to eight week period spanning from late May into mid uh, June into uh, July. Uh, so when uh, females are about to give birth uh, there's a significant drop in their movement patterns and their movement rates. Uh, with this, we can identify uh, the places and times uh, calves are being born by looking at the very uh, low uh, end uh, movement rates of, uh, of the uh, sample size, uh, the sample at large. Um, so after birth, um, their movement patterns uh, of mothers uh, gradually increases over a uh, about a four week period where their offspring mature and uh, become more mobile. Uh, so if there is a sudden drop in their mother's movements, um, our modeling should be able to detect um, whether or not the calf was uh, lost uh, depending on that movement pattern. 
Well, Jim, I want to turn to you now. Um, um, Jim is working for Mining Watch Canada, which is an NGO uh, active in Canada and elsewhere on mining issues. And Jim, your, your uh, scope of work is somewhat broader than, uh, than Caribou. Uh, you're looking at uh, hydrology, at uh, water issues, among, among others. So can you give us an overview of your uh, research for this project and what issues you've identified in your review of the marathon document. Sure. And uh, again, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, Kenneth, I'll, I'll make sure I keep in mind uh, and I don't bring any uh, bad harm from the U.S. and, and our uh, tendency of how we do things up to Canada. So uh, anyway, um, I should mention as background that I've reviewed hundreds of EISs in the U.S., uh, Canada, and elsewhere. Um, a lot of the perspective I bring comes from the work I've done with mine remediation, uh, particularly with the U.S. Uh, EPA Superfund program. And really, it, it largely comes from a lessons learned uh, background and standpoint. Um, so where I focus primarily is in the areas of uh, mine mitigation, uh, reclamation and closure, uh, dealing with water quality issues, as well as issues like creating a uh, useful and, and meaningful post-mining land use. Um, I do work with a lot of different groups who oppose mines, uh, but also I work with groups who work with mines, um, including the Selkirk First Nation in the Yukon, uh, also a, a project in the United States, the Good Neighbor Agreement uh, with Stillwater Mines that I've facilitated uh, over the past 20 years. Um, there are keys to mines that really work well with the public. One of those um, is, is truly a high level of transparency and the Stillwater Mining uh, Good Neighbor Agreement is a good example of that. Um, with respect to the Valentine EIS, there are some major concerns as I've reviewed it so far. Um, one of the things that becomes evident as you look through the mine is the degree to which the process uh, really typifies that of a exploration company developing a project versus a uh, well-established, experienced, um, let's say, uh, mining company with a, a long proven track record. Um, examples of that would be the original proposal for a heat bleach project at the site. Um, that was something that later on they uh, thought better of, and I, I think that was probably a wise decision on their part. Um, but even more so, a good example would be the original tailing storage facility location. And that location um, initially was uh, positioned such that a failure of the tailing storage facility would have a secondary uh, impact on the uh, Victoria Lake Dam. So, um, you know, and that's the kind of thing that I think um, companies with a long track record with more experience in operating projects, designing projects, um, ultimately might have avoided. Um, it's very important to understand that the EIS, as it's written in this case, um, is essentially predicated on everything going right. Um, the plan is followed, uh, everything that you say is going to occur occurs, and the outcome is one that is predicted to be um, almost without fault. Now, that's not the company's fault for having to write it that way. Um, the regulations actually unfortunately encourage that. Um, the real point of an EIS needs to be the assessment of potential impacts. Um, it's very difficult to do that when an EIS is written such that um, you only really look at the benefits. Uh, you don't recognize that, um, as was described earlier, uh, the mine can be 
plan for 12 years, there's no assurance it runs for anything more than two or five years. Um, it may also run for well past 12 years. You really don't know. Um, EIS also suggests that the regulations will be followed. Well, it, it's every company's intent, um, and I believe everybody in the mining industry always intends to follow the regulations. But that doesn't mean that predictions of hydrology, water quality, uh, stability, things like that are predictions. They're uncertainties and they fail at times. Um, we also always predict that the mitigation will work. Uh, we can destroy the cyanide before it goes in the tailings. Uh, we can go ahead and do other things to make sure, uh, for example, the suggestion that we won't impact the uh, caribou migration paths. Um, the reality is though that that mitigation doesn't always work and we need to be prepared in that event. So the EIS um, is very biased, if you will. Um, it, I think it's important to recognize that that is not untypical. Um, and it's really the job of, of those of us who comment on an EIS to raise the issues of uh, credible what ifs um, that should be also addressed in the EIS. Now, the other aspect of the EIS that I think is very important to understand, um, or at least recognize, um, I have to say I don't understand it, is um, I don't think I've reviewed an EIS in some time that has less detail provided in describing the actual project. Um, and a good example is when you look through the EIS chapter two, which is the description of the project, there's only one facility for which they describe the actual area that will be disturbed. Uh, the open pits, waste rock piles, tailing storage facilities, none of that actually has a footprint or area of disturbance in terms of hectares uh, attached to it. They do give us the uh, disturbance area of 4.1 hectares for a polishing pond. That's the only disturbance area. Um, I know Stantec, I know the people who are involved in writing these kind of things. And that's a, a kind of a glaring omission that I'll, I'll have to probably puzzle for some time as to why it's not there, but certainly was suggested needs to be there. Um, so getting to, to a very important issue, I think here, um, that was previously mentioned the plan really focuses and describes details to the extent it does on the operations period, as well as the closure period, I should add the construction period. So it describes a period of approximately 15 years in detail. And then it says for the reclamation and closure, post-closure period, everything after that, we're going to provide you an outline without a great deal of detail. And the question I always have when, the, when this occurs is, well, why are we describing only 15 years when the actual impacts will take place essentially forever? Um, and the need to make sure whatever rehabilitation and closure measures were done, uh, in fact, work and are maintained goes on forever. So when we talk about needing to address seven generations, and I work for a lot of different uh, First Nations and tribes in North America who that is very important to, um, it's always interesting to me that what we really typically describe is one generation's impacts, oftentimes the positive impacts, if you will, that are projected by a project. But we really don't recognize that the project will be gone and the need to make sure that whatever um, environmental or other risks still exist from the project are um, addressed goes on literally forever. Now to you, Simone. It basically echoes what 
the other panelists have been uh, have been saying. So with the funding from the um, impact uh, uh, assessment agency, we contracted the caribou expert, which uh, narrowed this focus on the caribou study for the baseline and then the impact uh, assessment. And uh, um, then uh, between uh, us, we looked at different aspects uh, of, the, of the plan. So there are, I say in, uh, in general, if I have to give an overall evaluation, I think this document um, ticks all the good uh, check boxes. If you look at it as an executive summary point of view, uh, as we have seen earlier, there's cumulative effect impact assessment. Um, I work with noise pollution, and I was uh, surprised to see that there's a there's a, an evaluation of the acoustic impact. Um, but then, um, what I found is that uh, there is a, a missing link between uh, current science and what has been done in the in the studies. Um, Keeping the example of the acoustic assessment, uh, it has been done using um, human health standards. So all the acoustic propagation estimates have been done according to Health Canada guidelines. And that doesn't really translate to the same level of impacts in terms of wildlife. And that goes for the caribou, which is a main focus of today's discussions. But there's also, a, I would say, a fairly big um, a body of research that have been has been looking at acoustic impacts of uh, industrial development on uh, bats, uh, small mammals, uh, um, and birds. And uh, there is a this process. This AIS doesn't engage with this literature and doesn't really um, estimate those impacts. And this is something that can directly impact the caribou, but there's also evidence that when you have disturbance, noise disturbance from a project, you also have a series of cascading effects of different components of the ecosystem. So you might have uh, a changes in predatory uh, prey relationship, you may have changes in species distribution. So then this is something that in the future with this environment with the uh, Valentine Lake, uh, Lake area changing from being a natural and quiet area to a busy mine. Uh, all these effects might then further deteriorate the caribou habitat, which goes back also to the issue of the 500 meters buffer for estimating impact. Uh, because noise can travel farther than 500 meters and we have evidence that caribou responds a kilometers from uh, from development development, and the same happens for other species like birds. Um, there's uh, uh, birds and uh, and species of bats which are kind of ending in the corner in this discussion. But there's also two two species of uh, bats that might be impacted by this project. Um, to then uh, like connect to what the others said, um, there's I, uh, 
I have a feeling that there's a, a lot of reactivity in the mitigation measures that are proposed. So, um, for example, in case the caribous are sighted close to the pit, uh, fencing is going to be put in place. Uh, and there's the same kind of reactivity for issues like caribou and vehicle collisions, where um, the environmental impact statement says that um, in case there's uh, areas of the project where there's a high incidence of uh, collisions, then an adaptive management approach will be put in place. Um, and I would like to take this and see it transformed into a proactive approach where we uh, end up avoiding the situation where we have too many uh, wildlife uh, vehicle collisions, for example. And that speaks to, I think, how the uh, entire document is organized, or how the project is organized, is that adaptive management is taken as uh, something that is going to be uh, kept in a box. And then when it's needed, it's all, the box is open. And from there on, the process starts. Uh, in reality, what adaptive management means is that we should be starting right now with understanding and planning mitigation measures and evaluating what uh, those measures uh, are gonna mean when they are put in place, like what's happening when uh, we adopt uh, the best technology for, for noise reduction, for example. Uh, it's easy to say there will be a reduction in impacts. It's hard to say this management measure is gonna reduce noise by two, three decibels. But then when you, when you concretize these uh, measures, you can evaluate them. And you can also see if the goals have been met. And going back to the adaptive management process, you can uh, reassess your mitigation and make sure that you're not missing anything. Highlights from the Big Mom Matters online public meeting on the Valentine Lake Gold Mine on December the 14th. You heard from Mucci Bennett, Brian McLaren, Richard Wong, Jim Kuypers, and Simone Cominelli. And you can watch the entire presentation on our Facebook page. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Nimaltus. <laughs>